Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense about the latest media reports on potential new treatments and ways of diagnosing mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a mental illness and needing treatment for it, as well as to better educate the general public about mental health issues. Well, interestingly enough, there was an article that came out last week showing some evidence that certain dietary supplements can actually help people who suffer from depression, who are taking medicine for their depression but still struggling. Uh, not other prescription medicines, but dietary supplements, nutrient supplements. Now, it's very important to point out that none of these supplements are meant to take the place of antidepressant medication. Uh, quite the contrary, um, aside from what the supplement manufacturers would have you think, and their claims to the contrary, there really is not any dietary supplement that would alleviate depression in such a way that would come anything close to the benefit of antidepressants. But nonetheless, it is very positive that there is now solid evidence for some supplements. Uh, so let's review that and uh, see what points there might be worth for you to take from this latest research. Um, it was an international evidence review that found that certain nutritional supplements can increase the effectiveness of antidepressants for people with clinical depression. Uh, and again, so these were add-ons to antidepressants, not independent treatments themselves. They looked at omega-3 fish oils. They looked at s adeno adenosylmethionine, otherwise known as SAMe. They looked at methylfolate, uh, which is a nutraceutical uh, that is sold under the brand name Deplin, and they looked at vitamin D. They were all found to boost the effects of antidepressant medication. The University of Melbourne in Australia and also Harvard University researchers examined 40 clinical trials worldwide alongside a systematic review of the evidence for using nutrient supplements, known as nutraceuticals, to treat clinical depression in tandem with antidepressants. Now, you may not be familiar with the term nutraceutical. A nutraceutical isn't a drug in that sense. It is pretty much just a supplement. However, since it is thought to have a therapeutic value, 
for a specific disease and it may often be sold only with a prescription, it's called a nutraceutical as opposed to a pharmaceutical. Now this meta-analysis was published in the recent issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. Refreshingly, the strongest finding from the review was that of omega-3 fish oil in combination with antidepressants had a statistically significant effect over a placebo. You know, I've always been a big fan of uh, omega-3s because of so many studies showing they relieve depression, especially bipolar depression. Uh, but this is the first time, to my knowledge, that anyone has looked at combining them with antidepressants to improve the treatment of depression. Many studies have shown the omega-3s are good in general for brain health and improving mood. Uh, so it's nice to see a combination study showing some benefit. The difference for patients taking both antidepressants and omega-3s compared to antidepressant plus just a placebo was very significant. Uh, this is very exciting because it's a safe, evidence-based approach that could be considered a mainstream treatment. The article doesn't talk about this, but I would like to draw a contrast between adding a second medication. For example, uh, for several years, Abilify was heavily advertised as an add-on treatment for depression. Uh, the pitch was, well, if you're going through depression, and you're on medicine for it, but you're still depressed, ask your doctor about Abilify, and you know, you're supposed to be able to add that to your antidepressant regimen uh, to improve mood. Now, that works, but Abilify has a lot of potential drawbacks. For one thing, it's severely expensive, and uh, even since it went generic last year, still very expensive. For another thing, it has some potential very serious long-term side effects, like movement disorders, some of which can be permanent, weight gain, uh, potential for developing type 2 diabetes. So it certainly pales in comparison to an add-on treatment like adding omega-3s or adding SAMe or methylfolate uh, in terms of cost-effectiveness in terms of safety. The University of Melbourne research team also found good evidence for methylfolate, vitamin D, and SAMe as mood-enhancing therapy when taken with antidepressants. They reported mixed results for other supplements, including zinc, vitamin C, and tryptophan, which is an amino acid, Folic acid itself didn't work particularly well in contrast to methylfolate, which is a special formulation of folic acid as found in a prescription nutraceutical form of L-methylfolate called Deplin. And inositol also did not work. Uh, so again, the positive evidence and this is for add-on treatment, not by itself. Omega-3s, SAMe, 
methylfolate, and vitamin D. And this is in contrast to a lot of uh, studies that purportedly showed that SAMe is a standalone treatment for depression. Uh, this research was only looking at add-ons. There's really no substantial evidence that SAMe alone will significantly help with depression. Medical professionals may be hesitant to prescribe nutraceuticals alongside pharmaceuticals simply because there's been a lack of scientific evidence around their efficacy. Medical practitioners are aware of the benefits of omega-3 fatty acids, but probably unaware that one can combine them with antidepressant medication for a potentially better outcome. The other thing is that there has been some controversy about omega-3s, mostly around other issues, not so much around depression. For example, omega-3s were not found to be helpful with Alzheimer's disease. I didn't see that as such a big deal. I thought the idea that they would potentially help with Alzheimer's was somewhat of a reach, at least, and uh, really rather unreasonable. So I didn't find that too surprising or disappointing. It's also somewhat controversial how helpful they are with cardiovascular health. But the fact that some studies don't show benefits in that area may just be that they were tested in a fairly sick population who had already had cardiovascular disease. Uh, so it is nice that there is some evidence here for the omega-3s as well as these other supplements. The researchers found no major safety concerns in combining therapies, that is the supplements with the antidepressant medications, but they stressed that people on antidepressants should always consult with their health professional before taking nutraceuticals and should be aware these supplements can differ in quality. That's very true. You have to be careful where you're buying them from. Are they properly labeled and uh, is there the UL for our United Laboratories um, symbol on there to certify what they are or is it USP United States Pharmacopeia uh, these are laboratories that certify that a supplement ingredient is what it says it is on the label now these same researchers are currently conducting a National Health and Medical Research Council study using a combination of these nutraceuticals for depression. So they may find some value when combining these things. If uh, <clears throat> they complete that study and publish their findings, I'll be sure to bring that to you. In the meantime, I can give you some insights from my own practice. Deplin is a nutraceutical, it is a prescription form of L-methylfolate, and it's been available for many, many years. Um, I want to say at least 10 years, if not longer. And I've given it to many patients in my practice who are taking antidepressants and doing somewhat better, but still struggling with depression. And I have to say that in many cases, Deplin again, it's a form of L-methylfolate, has been very, very helpful 
people feel a lot better when they added the uh, L-methylfolate to their antidepressant. Uh, it seems as though there are specific types of people who preferentially respond to Deplin. The uh, average profile of a the most uh, of, the, of the strongest Deplin responder is a woman in her 50s who is overweight and has high levels of inflammation in her blood as measured by the C-reactive protein level. Anything above 5 is considered elevated, and uh, so anyone who fits that profile is going to be the best Deplin responder, but... That doesn't mean it won't help other people as well. It uh, certainly could help younger, slimmer women and men. We're going to take a commercial break. We'll be right back with more. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties. Track and record your garden with photos and notes. Share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, are there exercise genes? A study suggests that certain people with depression may benefit from exercise. Call it personalized medicine for depression. But the prescription in this case is exercise, which University of Florida health researchers have found helps people with certain genetic traits. The UF study has found that specific genetic markers that put people at risk for depression also predict who might benefit from exercise. According to a study published recently in 
the Journal of Frailty and Aging. The researchers found that men who were carriers of two specific genes had the most significant response to exercise. The results suggest physical activity as part of a treatment plan, exercise as moderate as walking, could help the carriers of these genes. If they can show through systematic research that exercise has a good chance of helping a patient because of their particular characteristics, that certainly might help with patients' motivation to exercise. The results came from a small pilot study, so more research needs to be done before this work can be translated into clinical practice. But in the future, it's possible that blood or saliva could be tested to determine if a person could benefit from physical activity to lower depressive symptoms. The study used data gathered in the Lifestyle Interventions and Independence for Elders, or LIFE, pilot study. During the LIFE pilot study, 396 sedentary older adults were separated into two groups, those who received health education classes, that would be sort of like your control group or placebo group, and those who were given moderate physical activity classes for 12 months. A subsequent paper published from the LIFE pilot study found that exercise did not significantly affect depression symptoms across the whole group. But that changed when the research team tunneled down into the data. When they looked at subgroups, they ended up finding significant response to exercise in men who were carriers of a specific gene. To assess the participants' response to exercise, they took a test called the Center for Epidemiologic Studies Depression Scale, a screening test for depression and depressive disorders at the beginning of the life studies intervention. They took the test again after the interventions ended and at 12 months. The scale assesses four factors, including symptoms of sadness and fearfulness, symptoms such as loss of appetite and concentration difficulties, and a diminished capacity to experience pleasure or perceived difficulties in social relationships. The participants also underwent genetic testing before the intervention, and the researchers tested three genes, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF gene, a serotonin transporter gene, and a gene called apolipoprotein E. The researchers found the greatest decrease in symptoms, such as loss of appetite and concentration difficulties, in men who carried the BDNF genetic variation that predisposed them to depression. They also saw an increase in the capacity to experience pleasure in men who exercised regularly, who carried specific variations of the serotonin transporter gene. When patients are treated with antidepressants, the level of BDNF expression normalizes, 
helping them overcome depression. This study was different because it was designed to investigate the effect of physical activity in relation to genetic variations in these genes on changes in depressive symptoms. We already know that physical activity increases the levels of neurotransmitters such as serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine and also the natural level of endorphins. So scientists speculated that physical activity increased the expression of BDNF, leading to a decrease in physical symptoms often associated with depression. While the study's results are significant, a larger sample size and more genetic testing is needed to better determine the effect of physical activity on these genes. The study provides evidence that physical activity could be explored as an intervention for depression, but this study was not done in people whose symptoms were severe enough to be formally diagnosed with clinical depression. It's also important to understand the benefits of exercise because of the impact medications may have on the brains of older adults. <clears throat> it's trying to understand how exercise versus antidepressants affect the brain. The next step for researchers will be to understand from a brain standpoint who is going to benefit and how exercise is going to be beneficial in addition to or as an alternative to medication. Well, let me just explain a few things here about the genes that they looked at. First of all, the gene for BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. You can think of this protein as kind of turf builder, if you will, for your brain cells. Uh, BDNF is a factor that helps improve the health of your brain cells and in fact uh, helps you make new ones. And so when we see people in states of depression, uh, their levels are lower and when they start to respond to treatment and start getting better, their levels of BDNF go up. <clears throat> and so again to recap, they found here that uh, when you saw these people with very certain variations in the BDNF gene, uh, they found that their symptoms such as loss of appetite and trouble with concentration improved when they uh, saw an improvement in their depression. Now, the other two genes they looked at, one was apolipoprotein E. That is a gene um, where with one specific variation, uh, the apolipoprotein E4 variation of that gene, uh, this puts you at much, much greater risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so I'm not really sure why they included that in a depression study. Uh, perhaps they just included that as one particular variation to see how it would contrast with the two other genetic variations that we know are very closely related with depression and not Alzheimer's. 
the third one was for the serotonin transporter gene. You may know that several antidepressants are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, so they work at the serotonin transporter, and we've known from previous research that people with certain variations of the transporter gene uh, are more likely to respond to uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants than others. So that was the reason they looked at that genetic variation. And uh, in men who exercised and had that specific variation in that transporter gene, they were better able to experience pleasure from uh, normally pleasurable activities. What concerns me about this research is what kind of message it may send to patients with depression uh, and their treating clinicians who are both potentially considering exercise um, as an adjunctive uh, treatment to help them with their depression. Do we really want to be sending a message that, oh, well, in order to see if you're going to benefit from exercise and if that's going to help you recover from depression, we have to check your genetic profile first. Because if you don't have the right genetic profile, then the exercise won't do you any good. Uh, I don't really think that's a good message to send. Uh, so I'm all for research looking at the ins and outs of these genetic variations uh, and see who gets better and how. But I want the researchers to keep in mind that it's hard enough to get patients to be motivated to exercise. Um, and there are certainly so many, many physical benefits from exercise, even if it could be argued that it didn't necessarily help improve response to depression treatment. Uh, so I feel strongly we don't want patients getting the message that uh, absent certain genetic variations, they're not going to benefit from exercise, and uh, therefore, why bother? I think that's a dangerous uh, road to go down. Well, <clears throat> there's been a lot of buzz in the mental health world lately about mindfulness and mindfulness meditation uh, to help cope with stress and also specifically mindfulness-based cognitive therapy as treatments for depression and anxiety and other mental health disorders, um, even PTSD. So here is an article that we're going to talk about, about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy linked to reduce risk of depression relapse. Um, and what they found was that in those who received the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and even those who in many cases tapered off of or discontinued their antidepressant medication, they were still 23% less likely to relapse of their major depression. A very important, very fascinating finding indeed, and more excellent scientific evidence for the benefits of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. We'll go over that study when we come back. In this next commercial break, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. 
Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and your source for all mental health-related news. The largest meta-analysis so far of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for recurrent depression has found that it's an effective treatment option that can help prevent the recurrence of major depression. The study used anonymized individual patient data from nine randomized trials of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. It suggests that for the millions of people who suffer from recurrent depression, it provides a treatment choice and an alternative or addition to other approaches such as maintenance antidepressants. Major depression is a significant public health problem. Without ongoing treatment, as many as four out of five people with depression relapse at some point. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is a group-based psychological treatment that helps people change the way they think and feel about their experiences and learn skills that reduce the likelihood of further episodes of depression. 
This meta-analysis included data from trials that compared mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to usual care, as well as to other active treatments, such as maintenance antidepressants, the current mainstay approach to prevention of depressive relapse. Let me expand here on the background for this. One episode of major depression in a lifetime means you have at least a 50% chance you're going to have a second one. If you've had a second one, you have about a 75% chance that you're going to have a third. And if you have a third one, you have a 90% chance of having a fourth. So you see, it's very important to understand that major depression should not be seen as something that's treated in isolation. Just, well, you know, I had this one episode and that's it. Don't have to think about it or worry about it anymore. Not true. Um, It may come back at any point in someone's life. And whereas the first lifetime episode, or perhaps even the second, may be triggered by some severe, if not catastrophic, life stressor, the recurrent episodes that happen in the future may not uh, be tied to any obvious specific stressor. They may happen just spontaneously for no particular reason. So any treatment that would prevent the relapse of depression is certainly quite a significant development. And up until now, uh, the only and best way we've known to prevent a recurrence or relapse of depression is to maintain the same medication that helped treat the episode of major depression. Now, looking at the trials of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, there were nine of them the researchers looked at. 38% of those who received mindfulness-based cognitive therapy had a depressive relapse within 60 weeks follow-up. So that's um, a year and two months. In contrast to 49% of those who did not receive mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So they reduced, uh, so the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy reduced the relapse rate by 11%. Doesn't sound like a big amount, but that's actually quite significant. Uh, The way looking looking at the, the way depression research is done, that's actually quite a significant finding. Taking the time to relapse into account, people who received the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy were 31% less likely to relapse with their depression during the 60-week follow-up period compared with those who didn't receive it. The inclusion of individual patient data made it possible to demonstrate that a person's age, sex, level of education, and the age at which they first became depressed did not significantly influence the effectiveness of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, suggesting that this approach is useful for a broad range of people. 
those people who experienced more symptoms of depression when they entered treatment tended to show greater benefits from the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy compared with other treatments. Clinical trials systematically record the occurrence of adverse events and negative outcomes, such as death or hospitalization for any cause. The study found no evidence of adverse events associated with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy when delivered by well-trained teachers in a clinical context. And that's a very important point. I think for anyone who is interested in this treatment, you know, in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, I think it's an excellent treatment, not just for depression, um, but also for anxiety disorders. But you have to make sure that the person who is the practitioner of the therapy and basically teaching you, the patient, the technique, uh, is properly educated in the technique and the training of it themselves. Now, four of the trials that contributed to this meta-analysis that we're talking about compared mindfulness-based cognitive therapy combined with continuation, tapering, or discontinuation of antidepressants and also to continued maintenance antidepressant treatment alone. Data from these trials showed that those who received mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and in many cases tapered or discontinued antidepressant medication were 23% less likely to relapse to major depression than those who continued on antidepressants and did not receive mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. That is a very, very important finding uh, because one of the most difficult issues we face in treating patients with recurrent depression is, well, what's going to happen if we taper them off and uh, eventually discontinue their medication? Uh, the statistics that I cited for you earlier show that you know, they, they know they're going to be at risk for relapse just because they've had prior episodes. But what can be done, if anything, to mitigate that risk if they decide they want to come off their medication? Well, you know, now the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy may be an answer to that question. If, uh, again, as in this analysis, it shows that, that patients who had the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy treatment were more successful in coming off their medication and not suffering a relapse. <clears throat> While the evidence is from a relatively small number of trials, it is encouraging for patients and clinicians to have another option. There was insufficient data to examine which types of patient or context predict who would benefit most. This, along with varied individual study and wide combined study confidence intervals, which is a measure of how these statistics were done, means that clinicians need to be cautiously optimistic when tapering off antidepressant medication 
and treat each patient as an individual who may or may not benefit from both mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and other effective treatments. This new evidence for mindfulness-based cognitive therapy collated from individual patient data across nine randomized trials is very heartening. While the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is not a panacea, it does clearly offer those with a substantial history of depression a new approach to learning skills to stay well in the long term. It offers people a safe and empowering treatment choice alongside other mainstay approaches, such as cognitive behavioral therapy that is not mindfulness-based, as well as maintenance antidepressants. Of course, more research is needed to get recovery rates from depression as close to 100% as we possibly can, and even to help prevent the first onset of depression earlier in life. That would entail such things as perhaps genetic screening for people who have a known family history of depression, resilience training, and so on. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is a treatment developed to help people who have experienced repeated bouts of depression by teaching them the skills to recognize and to respond constructively to the thoughts and feelings associated with relapse, thereby preventing a downward spiral into depression. The Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy course consists of guided mindfulness practices, group discussion, and other cognitive behavioral exercises. Participants receiving mindfulness-based cognitive therapy typically attended eight two to two and a half hour group sessions alongside daily home practice. The nine trials contributing to the current study were conducted in the United Kingdom, Belgium, Canada, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. The current analysis involved data from 1,258 participants from these trials. In all the trials, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was delivered according to the published treatment manual, and all trials included people with a history of recurrent depression who were currently in full or partial remission from depression. In each trial, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was compared to either usual care or a non-mindfulness-based cognitive therapy approach, typically maintenance antidepressants. Only one trial compared mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to another psychological treatment. We'll finish up our thoughts on this paper when we come back from a commercial break. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. 
Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news. And just to finish up our thoughts on this interesting meta-analysis of nine studies on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, uh, the main important finding that it can help prevent relapse from an episode of major depression, even if a patient is tapered off their antidepressant medication. Um, There is an online blog, for those of you who are interested, that I wanted to tell you about. It's Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy for Recurrent Depression. What do we know? What does it mean? Where to next? Uh, That's what it's called. And it provides more detailed context and interpretation of the study. It provides more detail and interpretation of the key studies bearing on the question of the effectiveness of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, especially compared with the mainstay current approach, which is maintenance antidepressant treatment. So for those of you who are interested, you can find the blog at oxfordmindfulness.org. That's O-X-F-O-R-D-M-I-N-D-F-U-L-N-E-S-S dot org. Next up on Psychiatry Today... What causes deja vu? You may have never thought about that, but some researchers decided to take a look at it. You know what deja vu is, right? You walk into a room and suddenly your brain goes fuzzy with an overwhelming wave of familiarity, although it's a totally new experience. Like something out of a sci-fi plot, 
It almost seems as if you've walked into the future. Chances are you have experienced this situation known as déjà vu during your life. Déjà vu, which is French for already seen, occurs in approximately 60 to 80% of people. A phenomenon that's almost always fleeting and may manifest at any time. Despite widespread coverage, bursts of déjà vu are still misunderstood by the scientific community. Because there is no clear identifiable stimulus that elicits a déjà vu experience, it is only a retrospective report from an individual, it is very difficult to study déjà vu in a laboratory. According to many studies, approximately two-thirds of individuals have experienced at least one episode of déjà vu in their life. Understanding how memory storage works may shed some light on why some experience it more than others. Episodes of déjà vu may be closely related to how memory is stored in the brain. Retention of long-term memories, events, and facts are stored in the temporal lobes of the brain, and specific parts of the temporal lobe are also integral for the detection of familiarity and the recognition of certain events. The takeaway? The temporal lobe is where you make and store your memories. And so this is the logical place to start looking to explain the phenomenon of déjà vu, since the whole phenomenon is about thinking you remember you've been someplace before when in fact you haven't. So something is going wrong with memory and familiarity. While déjà vu's connection to the temporal lobe and memory retention is still relatively unknown, clues about the condition were derived from people who suffer temporal lobe epilepsy, a condition in which nerve cell activity in the brain is disturbed, causing seizures. Findings suggest that déjà vu events may be caused by an electrical malfunction in the brain. Epileptic seizures are characterized by dysfunctional nerve cell activity across the brain, which disrupts the electrical impulses that fire brain cells. These impulses can spread across the entire brain, inducing seizures. Clinical reports show that some patients who suffer from temporal lobe epilepsy report experiencing déjà vu almost as sort of a warning before an epileptic seizure event. In other words, you could think of it in these patients as that's their aura. Uh, some people who are prone to seizures have an aura, just like some people who are prone to migraines have an aura. It's some sensation that they feel each time they're about to have the event. But what is the basis for déjà vu in healthy people without epilepsy? Some researchers describe it as a glitch in the brain, 
when the brain cells for recognition and familiarity fire, allowing the brain to mistake the present for the past. In fact, the same abnormal electrical impulses that contribute to epilepsy can be present in healthy people. An example of this is a hypnagogic jerk, which is an involuntary muscle spasm that occurs as a person is falling asleep. You may have had that happen to you, or perhaps your bed partners had that happen to them, disturbing you. That is, someone is in the process of falling asleep, and all of a sudden they have this big muscle jerk or spasm. That is owing to just an, a random abnormal electrical impulse. And it happens in healthy people. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. And that's what they're saying may be happening with deja vu. If you find yourself in a novel situation and yet you somehow have the feeling that you've been there before, what they're saying is the explanation for this could be that those areas of the brain, especially the temporal lobe, that tell us of familiarity with a certain place or situation are inexplicably and randomly and abnormally firing, making us think that we've been someplace before, even though we haven't. Instances of deja vu in healthy individuals may also be attributed to a sort of mismatch in the brain's neural pathways. This could be because the brain is constantly attempting to create whole perceptions of the world around us with limited input. For example, it only takes a small amount of sensory information, like a familiar smell, for the brain to create a detailed recollection. Deja vu could be linked to discrepancies in the memory systems of the brain, leading the sensory information to bypass short-term memory and reach long-term memory instead. That may produce the unsettling feeling that we've experienced a new moment before. In the visual system, sensory information travels through multiple pathways to the higher cortical centers of the brain, areas that play a key role in memory, attention, perception, awareness, thought, language, and consciousness, with all information reaching those centers at or around the same time. Some suggest that when a difference in processing occurs along these pathways, the perception is disrupted and is experienced as two separate messages. The brain interprets the second version through the slowed secondary pathway as a separate perceptual experience, and thus the inappropriate feeling of familiarity occurs, resulting in the phenomenon of deja vu. Interesting to explain this poorly understood phenomenon uh, using what we know about the brain and memory <clears throat> certainly makes sense. But again, very difficult to study it 
which is why it's um, most of the information we have about it comes uh, from people who have the deja vu phenomenon abnormally frequently because they suffer from temporal lobe epilepsy. It's a lot easier to study these folks than the general population without temporal lobe epilepsy. Next on Psychiatry Today, could it be possible that there are genes for happiness? Well, scientists say for the first time in history, they've isolated parts of the human genome that could explain the differences in how humans experience happiness. There's a large-scale international study in over 298,000 people. Researchers found three genetic variants for happiness, two variants that can account for differences in symptoms of depression, and 11 locations on the human genome that could account for varying degrees of neuroticism. The genetic variants for happiness are mainly expressed in the central nervous system and the adrenal glands and pancreatic system. The results were published in the journal Nature Genetics. Prior twin and family research studies from the Netherlands Twin Register and other sources have shown that individual differences in happiness and well-being can be partially ascribed to genetic differences between people. Now, locating these genetic variants will also allow better study of the interplay between nature and nurture, as environment is certainly responsible to some extent for differences in the way people experience happiness. These findings, which resulted from a collaborative project with the Social Science Genetic Association Consortium, are available for follow-up research. This will create an increasingly clearer picture of what causes differences in happiness. The genetic overlap with depressive symptoms that they have found is also somewhat of a breakthrough. This shows that research into happiness can also offer new insights into the causes of one of the greatest medical challenges of our time, depression. The research is the largest ever into the genetic variants for happiness. So there you have it. And on that note, we will wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.